This episode of the Stock Market Movers podcast is brought to you by Calamero St. Heliers. I'm bringing it to you directly from Calamero today because it is actually dubbing as a recording studio. So yes, this could be the first ever podcast recorded, stock market podcast recorded from a pizza shop, so called the Guinness Book of Records. So I apologise for any noise in the background. It is Saturday, the 13th of June, 2020. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and this is episode 88 of the Stock Market Movers podcast, closing in on 100. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. So it was a heavy... Newsweek on the NZX and from a macro perspective as well. The country obviously moving to level one was big macro news. You know, you also saw a huge, well, not just last week, but over the last couple of weeks, huge civil unrest in the United States as a result of, I guess, the pent up lockdown situation with a spark really being lit by that police officer killing that man. I guess one thing we can agree on, and I'm glad, is that that sort of thing, it, it doesn't, isn't a man dying at the hands of police. It doesn't really happen that much in New Zealand in, in, in that situation. And, you know, before you email, I'm not saying it never happens, but it certainly doesn't happen with the same regularity, um, that's for sure. So one of the many, it seems, consequences of this is that I guess there's another threat of COVID outbreak in the United States. And you saw, I think it was a Thursday night, so in, the, in New Zealand there was a, sh- a sharp sell-off in the United States due to that, although it did seem to bounce back in the last trading day of the week. So I guess one difference between the response of the US government and that of, say, the Kiwi is that New Zealand, I think, a larger population, large percentage of the population has seen a benefit from the response. Um, you know, it, it's the thing that they keep saying over there, Wall Street versus Main Street. And there have been so many people in New Zealand that have been impacted by the wage subsidy when compared to the United States, which you could maybe argue has looked after larger organisations and corporations first, which of course is important as well because we have seen what too big to fail means in the past. But you could argue about which response has made more economic sense. But one response clearly has been has had a different perception than the other. And, you know, I don't think you can argue that. Anyway, that is all the macro I have, although I may cut back into it because a lot of stuff at the moment, specific company updates, is intertwined with the macro situation. So let's start with the warehouse WHS on the NZX. Um, they're looking to cut a lot, a lot of staff. That was the big news for the week from then. They said they've entered a, a consultation phase. I think basically that means people getting angry for the warehouse are cutting staff and then the warehouse explaining the numbers and then saying they have no choice but to cut the staff. So you've got 100 to 130 people at head office will likely go. Um, they are looking at six store closures in addition to the three already confirmed. So it'll be somewhere between 700 to 950 roles in addition to the head office. So you'd have to say that's around 10% of their workforce either rounding up or down. Now that obviously sucks big time for all the people that are about to lose their jobs and I can only imagine the uncertainty that all the people are facing now but it is a real hard one. I was disappointed to hear the Prime Minister sort of criticise the warehouse for this during the week um, but it's almost a natural response from the company. I mean you could almost say what, what are they meant to do? They've had this COVID situation thrust upon them and like everyone else in any other company big or small they're having to deal with that. So I think there are, th- there are three types of job losses at the moment. Um, just in general, big companies and small. Number one is we have got to do this as a company because if we don't, we're in trouble. So that, that's number one, save the company. Number two is 
Well, we maybe we should just play it safe at the moment because who knows what on earth is going to happen next. And number three, so that's a sort of conservative response. And number three is, man, we've been needing to cut costs for a while, but now's a good opportunity to do so. It was interesting because I remember back in the day when the warehouse came to Dunedin, when it was in the expansion phase and, and many other areas, it was sort of like, it's going to ruin all the small businesses in the area. People were panicking about it. There was protests. There was all sorts of things. And now when they're leaving, nobody wants them to. <laughs> and it's, you know, and they're, and they're saying the same thing, that it's going to ruin all the small businesses in the area. You know, I guess either some people were never happy or maybe both points are, are right just at different times, and I suspect a bit of both. So... It's not so unsurprising for the warehouse, obviously sad for many of those that are going to lose their jobs and for the communities. It is such a flow-on effect as well. I mean, if, if you're a landlord and the warehouse leaves your building, what are you going to do with it? You know, you have to think of something. Um, the, the really interesting part of, of the warehouse update came at the end. They wrote, and I'm reading directly here, since moving to level two, the group has seen strong trading across its brands. So that's to be expected. The door's open and they've been flat out. And then they wrote, this level of trading is largely seen as a consequence of pent-up demand and is not expected to continue as the economic impacts of COVID-19 are realised. So what they're saying is once everyone's gone and spent their money from that pent-up demand, bought the things they need to buy, buy the things they want to buy, then they're not expecting that to continue as the flow-on effects in the economy are starting to realise, which is a hell of a statement, actually. And they've... It's, it's a pretty straightforward way they've worded it as well. They, they don't really know what's going to happen. And they're expecting this demand to subside and the impact to come later on. Um, and, you know, that's probably sums up this whole podcast today and the last few weeks as well. It'll be really interesting to see what happens there. The next stock is Ryman Healthcare. They sort of went what COVID? <laughs> um, the headline read, underlying profit of six point, up 6.6% to $242 million. Um, so I guess it's been a good thing for Ryman to focus all these years on underlying profit. They've consistently reported underlying profit rather than net profit, their net accounting profit. Their accounting profit includes uh, changes in property movements, which some retirement operators in the past have used to make things to the unsuspecting eye seem better than what they are. So accounting profit was down 19% to 265 million, and that's due to the valuation assumptions because of COVID. It's nuts in a way that you see all these property companies, you know, listed property companies, reassess the value of their holdings downwards while residential property seems less impacted. And I don't, I don't really know what to believe on that though, in all honesty. I do speak to a lot of residential real estate agents who are, they, they always just seem to be over the top positive. It just, it just seems to be the way they are. Um, <laughs> you could argue that they're like the worst gauge on how the market is. It, it's sort of like asking me if you need a pizza, I'm, I'm going to say yes. And I'll even say yes if you've already eaten one. <laughs> it's not like a pub where the barman is going to go, that's your last one for the night. I, I will feed you pizza until they have to carry you out. Um, and that's what real estate agents are like. They, they, never seem to, <laughs> they never seem to be able to turn off either. Um, I probably just offended a bunch of real estate agents that are listening. I'm sorry about that. Um, I guess that's the way they have to be as part of the job. They're sort of like Donald Trump, Donald Trump in that respect. They, they're just always at full noise. Um, you know, it's the sort of saying, always be selling, and that's what real estate agents are like. Anyway, all, all real estate agents are going to say it's going well, and the media does as well. So I guess what you're seeing now is all the deals that are closing at the moment are the ones signed up earlier in the year because, um, you know, it takes time to settle and everything like that. So 
I do not think we'll know for sure until later in the year. That's what I'm picking. I can tell you from a business broking perspective that less has come to the market than what I was expecting. Um, I think that the way I was expecting, you know, people just to be desperate to sell, but I haven't really seen that. I think the wage subsidy and then the loan scheme has tied a lot of businesses over. Again, with that, I think the real impact could be seen in six to 12 months, especially once all those sort of support schemes have worn off. But I don't know, as I said in the conversation with Matt Joss the other week, I've been consistently wrong on this, so who knows. Um, back to Ryman, I'll just read the highlights from Ryman as they did a good job in summarising it, so I don't need to do it myself. Final dividend of 12.7 cents per share, taking the full year dividend to 24.2 cents per share, and they've They've lined the growth of the dividend up in line with underlying profit, which makes a lot of sense. Operating cash flows rose 12% to 400, just under 450 million. Cash receipts, which I guess is revenue, up 12% to 1.13 billion. Significant investment in keeping residents and staff safe, safe from COVID-19. I imagine there was. I mean, you saw the number that COVID did in some of those rest homes that I imagine maybe this isn't a good analogy but I imagine some of those rest homes were like maximum security prisons during that time um, they invested 11, 711 million in their portfolio and construction underway on 12 new villages with 841 beds and units built in the year that's up 11% assets of 7.68 billion up 15% continued strong demand for villages only 1.7% of resale units unsold at the year end and 98% occupancy at established care centres. So they're full. Uh, new Takapuna site acquired, 13th site in Auckland, land bank, 6,600 beds and units, seven new villages approved by councils, another seven new village applications lodged. Named most trusted brand in New Zealand industry for six time. I wonder who voted on that. Awarded the dementia-friendly tick from Alzheimer's New Zealand. Staff and residents happier than ever. I guess that's a subjective statement. Targeting having five villages open in Victoria by December 31st, 2020. So they're going nuts in Australia now as well. I'll tell you the secret as to why Ryman has been a multi-bagger. Not that it's much of a secret. They have... They have they rose 25 million in, in 1999, I think. Then they've never asked for capital from the market since. They've always funded their own growth. They've always had the same number of shares outstanding, adjusted for a couple of stock splits than, than they, that they've had. That's why it never makes sense to me as to why people get super pumped about capital raises. Um, Ryman never had to do anything. They were able to reinvest in the business and grow the, um, grow the per share output of the company, which is the most important thing. They've always found reinvestment opportunities all the way through and, and then have paid out an ever-growing dividend. They've been a wonderful investment for that reason. I guess the trouble that, that you know, $242 million of profit, underlying profit after a $25 million capital raise, that's how you get good returns. I guess it's easier said than done. I guess the trouble that they're finding now is that they've got to the size that they're able to grow at the rate that it's harder to grow at the rate that they once were, um, just, just due to the law of large numbers. And that is why you're seeing these growth rates as 6% as opposed to the 15% or 20% you used to see. And I guess the trouble that I see for investors buying the stock now is that it's still priced on similar sorts of multiples of what it used to be. It's sort of always traded at a 1% or 2% dividend yield. Um, and those it was priced that way but when the pathway for growth was easier and I just think it's harder now because of the law of large numbers I guess you could argue that it's safer so it you know because of size and it and it deserves a high multiple but I'm not sure about that for this this reason I think that the it 
it's going to be difficult for an investor buying today to achieve the same sorts of returns that you achieved in the past off a lower capital base is, is pretty much it. The final stock I'll talk about today is Air New Zealand. There's been a lot of news about Air New Zealand in the last little while. Um, I'm not going to get in specifically into the news itself, um, just because you know you can go read that. It was more just because a, a mate of mine called me um, the other day, and he asked me, "I thought Air New Zealand was a profitable company. What what the hell is 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 going on now? They've made all these profits over the years." And I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. They've made a tremendous amount of profits, especially in recent times when they've had a great operating environment with people travelling more, more reasons to go places, everything like that. You know, more stable competition, low fuel prices. It's been like a perfect storm for operating for, for airlines. Um, and so my response to that question was basically, yeah, I mean, I was shocked by how quickly every airline in the world pretty much was insolvent. Um, it was like... <laughs> COVID got locked down 10 days later, every airline without government help is out of business, which is nuts when you think about it. And it's not the first time it's happened to airlines as well. And it comes back to their business model. So the, the thing with airlines is that they've got large fixed costs. And they basically, if they don't have the cash flow to deal with those fixed re- recurring costs, then it's just like their ear getting sucked out of a balloon. Um, they need that cash flow to survive. And the big issue, I think, with companies like Air New Zealand, other airlines as well, I mean, Qantas, even more so than Air New Zealand, they virtually haven't retained any earnings. So by that, I mean all the profits that they've made, essentially, they've, they've paid out in dividends or share buybacks in the case of Qantas and other airlines, not so much Air New Zealand, but they've paid those earnings out as dividends to shareholders. So they haven't built up a capital base to survive, and excuse the pun, survive any sort of turbulence. And this wasn't like a, <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep going with the airline puns, but COVID wasn't turbulence in terms of financial markets for airlines. COVID was literally flying the plane into the side of the mountain um, in terms of revenue stops. And I think if this was just your typical financial crisis, another pun coming up, Air New Zealand would have sort of flown through it and they would have, it would have been a rocky time, but they would have got through it. And, you know, I think, Southwest Airlines, which is probably, at least before this, probably the, one of the best-run airlines in the world, always ran their balance sheet rather conservatively so they felt they could get through any economic situation. And even in this situation, they, they, they couldn't get, you know, they, they weren't able, able to sail through it either. So it's a really interesting one for the airlines um, because, as we know, this isn't the first time the government's had to step in on the airlines. And it could be one of those situations where they may be asked to retain more earnings in the future. Um, they may not be able to pay out all the dividends in the future and they may, be, may have to sort of keep a, a cash buffer in the account for situations like this. And obviously it's really sad for all those people that have booked holidays and everything like that and basically have no recourse to getting their money back. And one thing is sort of what you'd like to see, I think, is you know the government saying or governments around the world saying, look, we're stepping in and bailing out, bailing you out here. There's going to be restrictions in the way you guys do business going forward. And hold on, I guess you could argue that you know that getting bailing out, bailed out from a government forced situation. But as, as Warren Buffett says, you, you never really want to rely on the kindness of strangers. And by the end, airlines not retaining any earnings, you are relying on the kindness of strangers, with and these strangers having to bail you out. And I think there's a good case to be had that governments step in and say, look, 
we're going to bail you out, but you're going to operate differently to what you have in the past, and you have to retain some of those earnings for situations like this. And one of the things I'd like to probably see is, you know, in, in the United States, for example, if you've got a deposit in the bank up to a certain point that's insured by the government um, or by the by, by the bank or whatever, you'd like to see that almost with airlines. If you've got a, a flight booked with an airline and they've got the money sitting in their account, You'd almost like to see that guaranteed and, and, and backed up. So when situations like this happen, you can almost get it out. And it's just a matter of changing the structure of the way they do things. And if they retain some of those earnings, earnings, then they'll be able to get through those sorts of situations. The same way that after the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, there was all this new legislation about what banks can and couldn't do with their money and their allocation policy. Allocation policies. So I think it would make sense to see a similar thing with airlines. I wouldn't be opposed to it um, because I don't think it's a business model where we can go, where, where it's such an important company, um, important enough that one of the only companies that the New Zealand government, if they had to, would bail out. So it's a very important company in that respect. And I, I, I think you'd, you, it's fair to see restrictions on how they operate going forward saying that if we're going to keep bailing you out, then you're not allowed to pay out the same number of amount of dividends going forward, which therefore it would affect the valuation of the company. So if New Zealand's traditionally traded on a 6% dividend yield, then you know that dividend is going to be lower because of that, even in a good operating environment. Now, at least we would see a more sustainable airline during periods of difficulty. That's just my view anyway. That's all I have time for today. Um, I'm in the shop because I've got to make some tiramisu. We've run out of it, so I'm going to have to get back to the tiramisu. Head on down tonight if you want to grab some tiramisu or a pizza as well. I'll, I'll happily feed you. So thanks very much for, for listening. Um, this has been episode 88 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. We'll see you all again next week.